Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone, this is your host Paul, and this is Mysteries Abound, episode 24. This week we're doing a number of stories, including the cornfield creature, and from the Mysterious People website, the Cotswold Mysteries, Charles Wade, and the Ghosts of Snow Hill Manor. Is it good for you? Debunking 10 myths about Guinness, And from the paranormal news, is bovine haemoglobin the smoking gun in cattle mutilation cases? And a paraplegic man suffers a spider bite and walks again? Those and other stories on episode 24 of Mysteries Abound. first story this week comes from the www.propertycommunity.com website, and it's The Great Wall of China. There are few structures in the world which attract the amounts of rumours, truths and untruths that are attached to the phenomenon which is the Great Wall of China. This is a building project the likes of which will never be seen again, and one which to this day attracts the attention of tourists around the world. This wall of stone and regular fortifications has been built, destroyed and rebuilt and maintained from the 6th century BC. The wall itself covers a distance of around 4,000 miles, although due to the arc in which it is built, it is actually 4,160 miles long. The Great Wall of China covers the region from Shanhuaguan in the east to Loknua in the west, which defines the outer southern border of Inner Mongolia. There are many facts and figures about the Great Wall of China which have been created and built upon over the years, which we will cover in this article. The Early Beginnings of the Great Wall While the Great Wall of China is the one fortification structure which grabs the headlines and appears in the history books today, this is not the first wall to be built as a form of a barrier between opposing countries. The Chinese were already familiar with the most up-to-date wall-building techniques in the 7th century BC when the states of Qi, Yan and Zhao had their own structures to keep out the warring factions. 
Many of these walls were destroyed at the beginning of the Qin dynasty, which brought together the various warring factions in what is known as China. It was the Ming dynasty which brought about the Great Wall of China which we know today, following defeat at the Battle of Tumu in 1449. The leaders began the long drawn-out process of building a wall along the northern border of China in order to keep out their enemies and effectively create the country of Mongolia which we know today. This new strategy allowed the Ming dynasty to consolidate their position and create a massive barrier for the warring factions over the border to overcome before even commencing battle. The Building of the Wall While earlier defence structures in China were created using earth, which was rammed between wooden barriers, in the Ming dynasty the Great Wall of China was more complex and stronger using bricks and stones to complete what turned out to be one of the best defensive barriers ever seen in the world. Various parties tried to break through the Great Wall of China, although leaders insisted substantial time and effort was spent repairing and replacing damaged areas of the wall until finally Mongolia was brought into the fold. This then brought about the destruction of part of the wall so the Mongolian area could be brought into the Chinese Empire. Those who have visited the Great Wall of China will be aware that it crosses some of the most uncompromising terrain in the world, which is part of the reason why an estimated 2 to 3 million people died as a consequence of working on the wall. At its peak, the Great Wall of China was protected by over one million soldiers who patrolled the outer area looking for invaders and attackers. Strange Facts and Myths About the Great Wall Despite a common myth that the Great Wall of China is the only structure on Earth which is visible from the Moon, this is not true, as it would need to be around 70 miles in width before it could even be spotted on even the best visibility days from space. It is rumoured that if you took all of the bricks installed during the Ming Dynasty period of the Great Wall of China, you would be able to build a wall which was five feet high all the way around the world. The first 3,000 miles of the Great Wall saw over one million people die from accidents associated with the building process. During this period, it was also estimated that the Great Wall employed 70% of China's population on the project at some stage. The height of the wall is an average of 25 feet, and even though the Ming Dynasty section was built centuries ago, the bricks were something of an engineering breakthrough as they were able to withstand pressure of over a thousand pound per square inch. This, by any stretch of imagination, is remarkable, given the tools and techniques which were known from the time. While the wall has been common knowledge for centuries, researchers were amazed to discover over 500 miles of the Great Wall of China, which had been buried for hundreds of years. This amazing find adds to the mystique and the general amazement which this phenomenal building project attracts in abundance. The Great Wall of China has been the subject of many hoaxes and attempted frauds over the years, with the so-called Great Wall of China hoax published in the US press on June 25, 1899. The story goes that an American businessman had to acquire the Great Wall of China, demolish the structure and construct a road in its place. 
While without any foundation whatsoever, the story has developed a myth-like following and is often referred to as demonstrating the power of the tongue. There is no doubt that the Great Wall of China itself is one of the greatest ever engineering projects in the world. It covers some of the harshest terrain in the world, has survived centuries, seen between two and three million people killed building it, and attracts millions of visitors a year from all around the world. Like so many large building projects from century ago, all of the materials, where possible, were sourced from local supplies, but it is known that many of the materials used in the wall were literally dragged or carried for miles. The subject of many hoaxes and attempted frauds over the years, the Great Wall of China has taken on a life of its own and is one of the wonders of the world. And the following story comes from the cbs13.com website. A paraplegic man suffers a spider bite and then walks again. He has been confined to a wheelchair for 20 years. Now a paraplegic man is walking again and his doctors call it a miracle. CBS 13 went to Manteca to find out how a spider bite helped get him back on his feet. I closed my eyes and then I was spinning like a flying saucer, explains David Blancarte. A motorcycle accident almost killed David 21 years ago. At the time, he might have wished he was dead. I asked my doctor, Sir, what happened? I can't feel my legs, said David. Ever since, David's been relying on his wheelchair to get around. Then the spider bite. A brown recluse sent him to the hospital, then to rehab, eight months. I'm here for a spider bite. I didn't know I would end up walking, says David. A nurse noticed David's leg spasm and ran a test on him. When they zapped my legs, I felt the current. It was like, whoa, and I yelled, he says. He felt the current and the rush of a renewed sense of hope. She says, your nerves are alive. They're just asleep, explained David. Five days later, David was walking. I was walking on the bar, back and forth, he said. Now David is out of hospital and on his feet and walking. David basks in his glory and gives a ray of hope to others hoping to walk again. The 48-year-old former boxer and dancer is taking it in his stride, knowing his best days are still ahead. David's dream is to see his 14-year-old twin daughters grow up and get married so he can walk them down the aisle and have that first dance. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and then click on the link to Mysteries Abound and then on the link to episode 24 and then on the link to this article, you'll see there's a little video where CBS 13 has interviewed him. And in an unfortunate follow-up to this article, on the 13th of March, David's dreams had to wait. He was arrested on Friday on an outstanding warrant stemming from a domestic abuse case.
and from the www.mysteriouspeople.com, Charles Wade and the Ghosts of Snows Hill Manor. Snows Hill is one of the loneliest and most unspoiled villages in the Cotswolds. Its manor was owned by Winchcombe Abbey from 821 until the dissolution of the monasteries in 1539, when it passed to the crown, and was given to King Henry VIII's wife, Catherine Parr, as a gift. Subsequently, the house had numerous owners and tenants, and underwent many modifications and additions. The main part of the house dates from around 1500, and was altered and extended in the 17th century. By 1919, Snows Hill Manor was a semi-derelict farm. It was then that it was bought and restored by a man called Charles Paget Wade. Wade was an architect, artist, craftsman, collector and poet from Yoxford and Suffolk, who inherited sugar estates in the West Indies from his father. He had been employed as an architect in the firm of Parker and Unwin before serving in the army in France during the First World War. It was whilst in the army that Wade saw an advertisement for the sale of Snows Hill Manor in country life and it appealed to him immediately. When he visited the Cotswolds in February 1919, Wade found the house in a run-down state amid a forest of nettles and thistles. He undertook a complete restoration of the house and garden, preserving as much of the old panelling and stonework as he could. There were no modern additions or alterations, and Wade deliberately disregarded the use of electricity and modern conveniences, preferring the subdued and atmospheric lighting of oil lamps and candles. He then commenced filling it with his extraordinary collection of objets d'art, mechanical oddities, extraordinary clocks, bicycles, children's toys and many other more bizarre items which he'd collected from various places around Britain. Wade did not actually live in the manor house itself, but the old priest's house in the courtyard. This small house, a priest's lodgings in monastic times, is the cottage to the west of the manor house and had become a bakehouse farm building when Wade bought Snows Hill. Wade himself would add a touch of drama to the already unique atmosphere by materialising noiselessly from a dark corner of a room or from one of the numerous secret doors and passageways to startle the guests. He was extremely fond of dressing up using old costumes from amongst his vast collection, and visitors to his strange Cotswolds manor house, including John Betchman, Virginia Woolf, Graham Greene and J.B. Priestley, were often persuaded to perform amateur dramatics in Dragon, one of the rooms in the manor house or in the garden. J.B. Priestley described Wade as my eccentric but charming friend of the fantastic manor house. The names of the rooms in the house were chosen by Wade and usually bear some relation to their contents, decoration or their position in the house. So there are names like Seventh Heaven on the top floor, Meridian in the centre of the house, Dragon, named after the roaring fire that Wade would usually have burning in what was probably the great fireplace of the medieval hall, and Hundred Wheels, containing objects mainly connected with transport. The green room contains an incredible collection of 26 suits of Japanese samurai armour dating from the 17th to 19th centuries, 
gathered from various parts of England between 1940 and 1945. Wade seems to have had a profound interest in magic and alchemy. In a private room at the top of the house known as the Witch's Garret, there was once a collection of objects connected with witchcraft, and the floor and one wall were, and still are, decorated with various magical symbols. When the manor was given to the National Trust, this strange collection of magical objects was loaned to the Museum of Witchcraft, formerly at Burton-on-the-Water in the Cotswolds, now at Boscastle in Cornwall. Amongst the items the museum still has is a large oak magician's chest, possibly from the 17th century. Unfortunately, this was badly damaged in a flood in 2004, and only the wooden carvings, including female figures, green men and horned god masks, survive. Nothing is mentioned of these occult items in the National Trust's descriptions of Wade, the manor house, and his odd collection. Wade spent lots of time in the manor house, organising and restoring his incredible collection, and by the time he handed it and the manor over to the National Trust in 1951, he had amassed 22,000 items, plus a 2,000-piece costume collection. In giving the collection to the National Trust, his hope was that people would learn to value quality craftsmanship from contact with these objects, each endowed with the spirit of the craftsman and the era in which it was created. It is perhaps inevitable that an eccentric collector living in a lonely manor house in the Cotswolds will inspire ghostly stories of strange goings-on. In the best traditions of local folklore, there are indeed eerie tales told of Snowsall Manor. When Wade acquired the manor, he engaged 28 workmen who stayed in the attic during the week. After the first night, one workman refused to stay another night in the place, saying that it was haunted. Wade later learned that there was a belief in the village concerning the ghost of one of the Benedictine monks of Winchcombe Abbey. Some people who visit Snowsall Manor have noticed that the entrance to the house has a certain uncanny ambience and occasionally refuse to enter. When Charles Wade began his restoration of the first floor rooms, he sent a small piece of the timber to a well-known lady psychic in Brighton without telling her where it originated. She replied, Two houses upon a steep slope, the larger, lofty and mysterious. In the lofty house in an upper room, late at night, there is a girl in a green dress of the 17th century. She is greatly agitated. She paces anxiously up and down the room. She doesn't live here and will not stay the night. It was only later that Charles Wade came across a story that may have inspired at least one of the hauntings at the manor. It involved a clandestine marriage that took place in an upper room of the house on St Valentine's Eve, 1604. Anne Parsons, a 16-year-old orphan heiress related by marriage to John Warne, owner of Snows Hill at the time, was forcibly removed from the home of her guardian by Anthony Palmer, a handsome 20-year-old servant and some friends. She was then taken to Snows Hill Manor and married to Palmer at midnight in the room above the Great Hall by the vicar of Broadway. 
she afterwards refused to stay at Snow's Hill and the dejected wedding party was forced to travel by night to the village of Chipping Camden. The marriage was subsequently declared invalid by the court of the Star Chamber. The room is now known as Anne's Room and is haunted by her unhappy ghost. Another incident which may have contributed to the ghostly atmosphere of the house is the duel which is supposed to have occurred in the room known as Zenith, in which one of the participants was killed. Another story relates to Charles Marshall, who occupied the house in the first half of the 19th century and held leases over a thousand acres of land. After he died, his widow still lived at the manor and farmed the adjacent land. Sometime before 1858, the year Mrs Marshall died, a labourer named Richard Carter was working at a remote place called Hill Barn Farm. Returning home one evening by a little used track, he met an apparition of his former master, Charles Marshall, who rode alongside him on a fine black pony. This happened several times and finally Carter, on the advice of the rector, asked the ghost what it wanted. The reply was that Carter should meet him at midnight in the chaff house. At the meeting that night, Carter was given a secret message for Mrs Marshall, the contents of which were never made known. However, there were rumours that the message was connected to the location of hidden money, as soon after the incident, the widow managed to start new buildings to the north of the manor. This story was told to Charles Wade in 1919 by Richard Dark, son-in-law of the labourer Richard Carter. The village of Snows Hill itself also has its tales of ghosts and hauntings. Alistair Biles, landlord of the Snows Hill Arms from 1969 to 1979, frequently saw a ghostly figure in the ancient upstairs part of the inn. This apparition could open doors and would disturb his dog so much that it would run downstairs to the modern part of the building. The strange figure often took the form of a hooded monk, but at other times seemed to have very little form at all, being no more than a misty shape that would disappear through walls or closed doors. Neither Mr Bile nor his family ever felt threatened by the figure. There is also a strange presence that lurks in the lane that runs past the manor and there is a particular spot here that many of the older villagers refuse to pass after dark. Many local people think the ghost, like the one in the Snows Hill Arms and perhaps the manor, is that of an unhappy monk, probably connected with Winchcombe Abbey. The pub is one of the oldest buildings in the village, and in medieval times it is thought that the older part was used as a hostel for visiting clergy and lay people. Charles Wade, though rarely seen about the village, was well liked by the locals, though his 18th century appearance with outlandish bobbed hair and breeches, stockings and buckled shoes, was thought eccentric, to say the least. In 1946 he married and spent many of his last years in the West Indies. He maintained a keen interest in Snows Hill Manor and continued to add to his collection. In 1951, when he gave over the manor to the National Trust, Wade was the same unique figure, still mischievous, waxy-complexioned, a medieval face seen through the wood smoke. While on a visit to England in July 1956, Wade was taken ill in Broadway and shortly after died in Evesham Hospital. 
He is buried with his mother and sisters in Snows Hill Churchyard. He once wrote of his beloved Snows Hill Manor, Old am I, so very old. Here centuries have been, Mysteries my walls enfold, None know deeds I have seen. And just a little Irish drinking tune to get us in the mood for the next article. And this is written by Michael B. Doherty. And it's from the www.asylum.com website. Is it good for you? Debunking 10 myths about Guinness. In 1759, Arthur Guinness first began to brew his eponymous Irish stout, and probably sometime in 1760, people started making crap up about it. Like shamrocks, freckles and bar fights, Guinness has become an icon of the Emerald Isle, known around the world for its impenetrable colour, its complex pouring ritual, and its ability to balance well on a toucan's beak. 
It's also known for the wild rumours associated with it. From the common barfly's claim of better tasting pints in the old country to conspiracy theories of macabre secret ingredients. Just in time for St Patrick's Day, Asylum goes Mythbusters on your favourite draft. Boston, we're looking at you. Myth number one. Guinness is heavy in calories. False. Guinness weighs in at 125 calories per 12-ounce serving. But wait, who drinks a 12-ounce Guinness? Nobody, since a pint is 16 ounces. 20 for the lucky ones in the motherland. Do the math and you get about 170 calories per 16-ounce serving. Guess how many are in a 16-ounce Strawberry Surf Rider smoothie from Jumba Juice? 330. Thank us later, ladies. Myth number two. Guinness is supposed to be warm. False. Guinness reports this draft is best stored at 42.8 degrees. Your average fridge is between 35 and 38, which is a bit on the chilly side. Unfortunately, most beer coolers in bars are even colder to accommodate our thirst for ice-cold beer. Regardless, 43 degrees is neither warm nor room temperature. The obvious solution is to order two at a time, so one is always warming up. Myth number three. Guinness for strength. Undetermined. The famous Guinness is good for you and similar advertisements from the 1930s. Great marketing ploy, but just keep in mind it came about in the 1930s, when you could still claim your product did anything and not get into trouble with the law. We happen to think a pint of Guinness is the most important meal of the day, but we have no scientific evidence to back that up. Your mileage may vary. If Guinness does give you a boost, it's probably more in the liquid courage category. Myth number four. The flavour of Guinness stems from nefarious sources. False. The more outrageous stories about Guinness include the ones about how dead rats were found at the bottom of the vats in St James's Gate Brewery in Ireland, thus explaining the unique taste of the stout. Other stories have circulated that Guinness is actually filtered through lamb's blood to get its taste. This one is classic barroom BS at its finest. Guinness has been the victim of more Snopes-worthy urban legends than any other libation, except maybe Corona. The basics of Guinness are barley, hops, yeast and water from the Skull and Bones Society. Guinness derives its toasted flavour, which tastes anywhere from coffee to chocolate, and a bitter hint from the manner in which its malted barley is roasted and the amount of hops used. The creamy taste of the head is a result of nitrogen bubbles released during the pouring process. Myth number five. The St James's Gate Brewery produces different kinds of Guinness for various markets. Well, kinda. Guinness is available in a hundred countries and is brewed in nearly 50 of them using locally sourced ingredients like water. Therefore, one could argue, and we know you will, that any Guinness brewed outside Dublin is materially different. The top five selling markets in order, Great Britain, Ireland, Nigeria, the US and Cameroon. We were surprised by those two, too. Myth number six. Water from the River Liffey in Dublin goes into Guinness. 
false. While the St James's Gate Brewery sits next to the river, the water used to make Guinness comes from the Wicklow Mountains to the south. Myth number seven. Guinness in a can is different from draft Guinness. Confusing. Guinness is available in draft, extra stout and foreign extra. Draft comes in cans, bottles and, well, draft. Extra stout comes only in bottles and foreign extra comes in bottles, cans and an extra smooth variety. Got all that? Good. Myth number eight. Strict vegetarians can't drink Guinness. True. The production of the stout involves the use of Isinglus, a byproduct of the fishing industry derived from dead fish. Isinglus is used as a fining agent for settling out suspended matter in the beer vat, and while it's kept at the bottom of the tank, some Isinglus may end up in the final product. So if you're the type who avoids gelatin and whey in your diet, you're out of luck. We can only imagine the histrionics this revelation might spark from PETA. Myth 9. Guinness is black. False. Look closer and you'll see that Guinness actually has a ruby red colour due to how the malted barley is roasted. Hint, this is an easy way to win $5 from your friends. Myth number 10. The Guinness in Ireland is much better than the Guinness served in the United States. Up to you. While we would never judge a fellow tippler for his esteemed critique of the palate, this granddaddy of Guinness myths is usually spouted from the condescending lips of a recently returned study abroad student, suddenly eminently more cultured than we are for spending three months puking outside the American theme bar in some foreign city. Whether a pint is better in the old sod than it is here really has to do with a lot of factors, mainly how many you've had. The following article was sent to me by Rob Rusa from Canada, and it's entitled Is Bovine Haemoglobin the Smoking Gun in Cattle Mutilation Cases? And it's by David Twitchell, and it was posted on the 10th of June, 2005. The only known modern biochemical process to produce pure haemoglobin from human or animal blood is in a laboratory with chemicals, a centrifuge and strict temperature control. Yet, of all the impossible and improbable anomalies discovered in scores of cattle mutilations around the world each year since the 1950s, pure bovine haemoglobin can now be added to the list. 
For those unfamiliar with the phenomenon, ranchers have awakened to find one or more of their cattle dead on their property. Not just deceased, but at first glance, brutally mutilated. The ranchers know that the particular animal was alive and well as recently as 12 hours prior to the find. But the skeptic's unwavering and illogical conclusion is either predator or satanic cult. Upon closer observation, it is discovered that the animal was not mutilated, as would be true in the case of a predator. Instead, operated upon, and specific organs removed with laser-like precision. A similar pattern of hide and tissue are removed from the head, usually an ear, eye, jaw flesh, the tongue, and sexual organs are removed. In almost all cases, the rectum and or vaginal tract in females have been cored out. The excision sites appear to be cauterized around the edges, indicating some form of heat was employed in the process. To add to the mystery, there is no sign of a struggle, nor are there tire tracks or footprints around the carcass, not even of the animal itself. Occasionally bones are broken at the point where the carcass has impacted the ground, suggesting it has been dropped from some height. As eerily precise as the unusual animal deaths are, typically there is absolutely no blood to be found around or near the carcass. Further, the animal itself is completely devoid of blood. Other natural predators such as coyotes or wolves refuse to go near the area of the carcass. In October of 2000, biophysicist W.C. Levengood of the Pinelandia Biophysical Laboratory in Grass Lake, Michigan, called Linda Moulton Howe to discuss his amazing finds concerning a bovine excision case that had occurred in 1997 in Red Bluff, California. Levengood is a world-renowned biophysicist who had worked extensively in the field of subtle or implicate energies. He is well known for his work in crop formations and bovine excisions. His method for determining the authenticity of crop formations has become the standard for seriologists worldwide. Miss Howe is an Emmy award-winning TV and documentary producer, investigative reporter and reporter and editor of the science and environment news website earthfiles.com. A 2,000-pound black Angus bull had been discovered at the ranch of Jean and Bill Barton that displayed all the signs of a classic bovine excision. The bull was found in a hillside pasture about one-half mile from the only dirt road that led into the area and could only be reached on foot or horseback. Besides the typical earmarks of a genuinely anomalous excision site, small black hardened specks were discovered on the chest and testicles at the point of the excision. Samples of these were gathered by field investigators Jean Bilodeau and Royce Myers and delivered to Levengood for analysis. To Levengood's amazement, he found them to be pure haemoglobin. To confirm his findings, he sent the samples to analytical chemist Phyllis Buddinger in Ohio. Miss Buddinger used the latest state-of-the-art infrared spectral photometer to analyse the samples. Her findings confirmed Levengood's suspicions that these were indeed samples of raw bovine haemoglobin. Levengood states in his report, The fact that erythrocytes, leukocytes and other components such as enzymes and hormones are missing, somehow they had to be extracted from the blood of the animal in order to obtain the very homogeneous haemoglobin. 
To do this, you need to break down the cell membranes to the erythrocytes and leukocytes to remove the haemoglobin molecules. To do this requires a laboratory procedure with very precise biochemical steps. It's totally incomprehensible how the haemoglobin could be removed in the middle of the night, out in the middle of a pasture, and separated from all the other cellular components. He adds, Here you have two basic enigmas. How was it removed in the fresh state and remained biochemically active in a very pure form? And second, how was this formed into a solid that looks like a piece of old black bakelite, a very black hard substance? So what this does in my estimation, it takes it out of the realm of the predators, takes it out of the realm of devil worshippers. This has to be an extremely sophisticated process. I have no idea how it's done, he admits. Identical evidence has been uncovered in bovine excision cases in California, Texas and Alabama. Levengood had sent the particles to several laboratories for peer review and they refused to even look at them. They took one look at this and said, this sure isn't haemoglobin because whoever heard of haemoglobin in a solid black form, he said. In the writer's opinion, their ignorance and the desire to maintain it is the reason mainstream science has stagnated in this and many other areas. In his research report dated June 22, 2002, entitled Biophysical Study of Two Bovine Excision Sites at Christmas Valley, Oregon, 2002, Levengood discovered the same pure haemoglobin in two instances that occurred only days before and within six miles of each other. As with all genuine excision cases, the foliage surrounding the carcasses has been affected in the same manner as in crop formations. Although he believes that two different but similar types of microwave energies are being applied between the plants and the excision sites, Levengood admits that these could not possibly be random energies within Earth's atmosphere, especially in the case of the bovine excisions, but rather purposely directed by someone or something. In his 2002 report, it is the first time that biophysicist Levengood publicly alludes to extraterrestrial intervention as a possible solution. As to the energies employed, he states... The results from these two sources, combined with data from past investigations, demonstrate quite clearly that the energy producing the changes in the plants is not of the same design or intensity as those producing the excisions or purifying the blood haemoglobin. The energy affecting the plants is of a more subtle nature, giving the impression that it may be an artefact of the propulsion or internal energy components emitted by the UFO craft. Elsewhere in the same report, this local injury effect was not observed in plants at the bull excision site. However, in this case the energy source, the UFO, was at such a sufficient height above the soil surface to cause the induced magnetic field from the ion-electron avalanches to pick up magnetic particles thus accounting for the reduction in the level of magnetic particles near the animal as well as the log-log type of distribution. In a phone interview with Levengood he told me, there is no way all of the blood can be drained from such a large animal to include the capillaries, especially in a pasture environment. In the light of the haemoglobin discovery and the missing erythrocytes and leukocytes from the carcass, 
he hypothesizes that the blood has been disintegrated by some form of microwave technology that is yet unknown to modern science. Both W.C. Levengood and Linda Moulton Howe were interviewed for an instalment of UFO files pertaining to cattle mutilations, which recently aired on the History Channel. Miss Howe was the investigative reporter working to collect samples for Levengood at the site of a mutilation in Farnham, Nebraska, and the production crew followed her around. Levengood indicated that he was interviewed all day and spoke at length of the haemoglobin find and its importance to bovine excision phenomenon. Alas, not a word on the matter was aired. After more than 45 years of cattle, horses and wild animals being found bearing the same distinctive characteristics of intelligent intervention using advanced technologies, no one has ever been arrested in connection with these hideous acts. After countless man-hours devoted to careful scrutiny of the evidence, biophysicist Levengood, among many others, believes that the bovine haemoglobin discovery is the smoking gun evidence. And from the www.paranormalabout.com website, an article by Frank Semko, Cornfield Creature. I used to work at a cheese factory on the edge of a cornfield in southwestern Minnesota. There were a series of days in the summer of 04 or 05 where it was so hot that the milk being delivered to us in trucks would evaporate before we got it. It made work easy. The dearth of milk denied us any actual labour, but management wouldn't let us not come to work, so we would show up and mess around all shift. I was working nights at the time, it was 2am or 3am, and I was out on the loading dock watching bats fly around the floodlights because I liked being out in the cool night air. The corn was about as high as my shoulder, so about 5 foot 10. As I was watching the bats, I looked down at the edge of the cornfield. Something was moving there. It was the size of a small child and very, very skinny. Pale, with something that looked like a head of straight black hair. It moved in a sort of jerky gait, like someone dancing the robot badly. It moved in chunks, legs, then hips, then torso, shoulders, neck and finally head. It was looking back into the cornfield, or at least I felt like it was. I felt prickly all over. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a heron or something at first, but it looked too much like a person. It didn't move like a person, though. Gradually, step by step, it moved towards me. Letting my curiosity better my fear, I moved towards the edge of the dock, which was raised a few feet off the ground to connect with semis. When I got within a few feet of the edge, 
The thing looked at me. I was paralysed. I could have run, but I was stuck somewhere between terrified and intrigued. It moved, its face still pointed at me. It ratcheted its body in that disconcerting, jerky movement towards the cornfield and went into it. I tried to watch where the field moved as it passed, but the corn remained perfectly still. I noticed that all the crickets were silent. After a few minutes, nothing happened. I stood out there for an hour, but it never came back. I never saw it again. The Fire of St. Elmo and this comes from the www.islandnet.com website and it's Weather Phenomenon and Elements. The storm watch had been set and all hands awaited the onset of the tempest that raged to the windward. Rushing ahead of gale winds, heavy seas rocked the brig. Then suddenly at the mastheads and bowsprit Ghostly blue flames leapt into the sombre night, lighting the masts like candles. The atmosphere of dread anticipation split at the sight. The sailors to a man breathed a sigh of relief, for their patron saint, Elmo, had come to watch over the brig and see her safely through the storm. St Elmo's fire has long served as an omen of heavenly intervention to sailors. The ancient Greeks termed a single jet of the fire Helena, and a double jet Castor and Pollux. It has also been known by the names St Nicholas and St Hermes, Corpus Sante and Corpus Santos. The name of St Elmo is attributed to an Italian derivation of Sant Ermo or Saint Erasmus around 300 AD the patron saint of the early Mediterranean sailors, challenging the powers of storm and sea in small sailing vessels. Julius Caesar wrote in his commentaries, In the month of February, about the second watch of the night, there suddenly arose a thick cloud, followed by a shower of hail, and the same night the points of the spears belonging to the Fifth Legion seemed to take fire. Of all the varied names attributed to this phenomenon, St Elmo is the one most often passed down in English language chronicles. Mention of St Elmo's fire can be found in the journals of sailors from crews of the early explorers Columbus and Magellan. The tales of illiterate sailors, as well as those of Shakespeare and Melville, and the notes of Charles Darwin during his voyage on HMS Beagle. A chronicler of Magellan's voyage to circle the globe observed, During those storms, the holy body, that is to say St Elmo, 
appear to us many times in light on an exceedingly dark night on the main top where he stayed for about two hours or more for our consolation. Darwin wrote in a letter to J.S. Henslow that one night when the Beagle was anchored in the estuary of the Rio Plata, everything was in flames, the sky with lightning, the water with luminous particles, and even the very masts were pointed with a blue flame. The appearance of St. Elmo's fire was regarded as a good omen, for it tended to occur in the dissipating stages of severe thunderstorms, when the most violent surface winds and seas were abating. Thus it was interpreted as the answer to the sailors' prayers for heavenly intervention. Its appearance preceding a storm or during fair weather portended that the guiding hand of St. Elmo would be present. According to Francis Bacon, quoting Pliny, the Roman naturalist, if it, St. Elmo's fire, be single, prognosticates a severe storm, which will be much more severe if the ball does not adhere to the mast but rolls or dances about. But if there are two of them, and that, too, when the storm has increased, it is reckoned a good sign. But if there are three of them, the storm will become more fearful. In Melville's Moby Dick, Ishmael observes, All the yard arms were tipped with a pallid fire, and touched at each tripotential lightning rod with three tapering white flames. Each of the three tall masts was silently burning in that sulphurous air, like gigantic wax tapers before an altar. In all my voyagings seldom have I heard a common oath when God's burning finger has been laid on the ship. With the advent of Franklin's lightning rod, church spires and metal weathercocks, St Elmo's fire came inland, especially in the thundery weather of the North American continent, inspiring tales of ghosts and spirits. With the age of flight, the fire has appeared along the wingtips, propellers and antennae of aircraft, often disrupting radio communications. There is even a theory that the Hindenburg Zeppelin disaster may have been sparked by St Elmo's fire, igniting leaking hydrogen. Physical description of St Elmo's fire has ranged from a ghostly dancing flame to natural fireworks. It usually is of a bluish or bluish-whitish colour, attached to fixed, grounded conductors, and has a lifetime of minutes. The flame is heatless and non-consuming, occasionally accompanied by a hissing sound. These latter properties promote the myths of spiritual presence. The biblical burning bush that was not consumed may have been displaying one form of St Elmo's fire. Despite the mythology of divine intervention that has arisen from this natural phenomenon, St Elmo's fire has a scientific explanation. Benjamin Franklin first correctly equated the fire to atmospheric electricity in his 1749 description of the lightning rod, which he believed could draw the electrical fire out of the cloud silently before it could come near enough to strike, and a light would be seen at the point like the sailor's corpusante, St Elmo's fire. The phenomenon is scientifically known as a corona, or point discharge. It occurs on objects, especially pointed ones, when the electrical field potential strength reaches about 1,000 volts per centimetre. 
When the electrical potential field is great enough to overcome the resistance of the medium across which it occurs, a current of electrons will result. During fair weather, the electrical field strength of the atmosphere is about 1 volt per centimetre. In the initial stages of cumulonimbus or thunderstorm formation, however, the field increases to 5 volts per centimetre, and just before a lightning flash reaches 10,000 volts per centimetre. Thus the atmospheric electrical field is only strong enough, under normal circumstances, to produce St Elmo's fire during thundery weather. When the storm is particularly heavily charged, leaves, blades of grass and even the horns of cattle may glow at their tips. In fact, the glow of St Elmo's fire has often been observed on sharp objects in the vicinity of tornadoes. When objects rise above the ground, they retain to some degree the electrical potential of the ground, that is, they are grounded. For example, a 10 metre high object, if it were a perfect conductor, would have the same electrical potential at its top as its base. If the atmospheric electrical field decreased at a rate of 100 volts per metre, or 1 volt per centimetre, the top of the perfectly conducting object would be at a potential 1000 volts higher than the air surrounding it. This would cause a weak electrical current to flow from the object into the air. Electrical current flows away from a point of higher potential to one of lesser potential, which is a normal, usually invisible process. However, when the electrical potential field becomes sufficiently strong, electrons torn from molecules of the higher potential surface may acquire enough energy between initial escape and collision with another molecule to avoid capture. Instead, the collision will tear off another electron, ionising the molecule. When the collisions between free electrons, ionised molecules and molecules of the air become frequent, enough energy is available to excite air molecules into luminosity. If the region of collisions is confined to a small volume, such as around a pointed object, the luminosity under low ambient light becomes visible as a blue or bluish glow. Near any point conductor projecting into the atmosphere, such as a ship's mast, the lines of electrical force are deflected from their normal position and tend to concentrate around the tip. Near this point, the electrical field potential strength will be considerably higher than that of the undisturbed atmosphere. The extent of this concentration is dependent upon the geometry of the object. The sharper the point, the stronger the surrounding field. It is for this reason that lightning rods work. Thus, ionisation may occur around sharp points under atmospheric conditions that would not ordinarily give ionisation. When an isolated point is raised to 30 to 40 metres, such as the mast of a large ship, coronas can occur in electrical fields of around 200 volts per centimetre. St Elmo's fire also forms on aircraft flying through heavily charged skies, often as a precursor to a lightning strike. The glow can be seen concentrated on wingtips, antennae, the tail, nose and propeller blades when the potential difference is large enough. St Elmo's fire can be heard singing on the craft's radio, a frying or hissing sound running up and down the musical scale, according to some pilots. Thus, in the thundery weather, 
when the atmospheric electrical field is tense, the mast tips may begin to glow with the fire of St Elmo. A ghostly flame which danced among our sails, and later stayed like candlelights to burn brightly from the mast. When he appears, there can be no danger. And that's a quote from Christopher Columbus on his second voyage. Just some feedback about the show. This one's from James Wesley. Dear Paul, I really enjoy your podcast, Mysteries Abound. I stumbled across it a few months ago and have listened avidly ever since. I've been into unexplained mysteries ever since I was in the third grade. The stories you find are extremely entertaining, creepy, weird, thought-provoking and even humorous. I've downloaded thus far all 23 episodes and have distinctly savoured each. It's a part of my bedtime ritual to listen to you to recite these articles and tales as I lay down to sleep. Sometimes I doze off and slumber as your words and the soft music you add to them melt away. Or sometimes I am kept awake, an eerie ambience making my hairs tingle and a disturbing or unsettling story making my body tense and my eyes close tightly shut. Sometimes I am too afraid to open my eyes, even to turn off my zoom when your stories finish. Distinct and vivid images materialise in my mind, and I am quite afraid sometimes, late at night, that I will see these things when I open my eyes. There are other times when I stay awake after listening to the night's selected podcast, afraid to leave my room, wary of the windows, fearful of what kind of glowing eyes may appear from the other side of my thin curtains. The slightest noise, be it the house settling or something loose falling into place, makes my muscles freeze as I try to relax and get scary ideas out of my head, such as skinwalkers or the mothman or who knows what else. Thanks for the scary nights in my bedroom and home, Paul. I relish them. You keep my imagination alive and my mind working with your podcasts and help me to continue to ponder the unexplained and the unexplainable. Well, thank you, James, for that beautifully written review. It's quite a piece of prose. And James went on to ask something about Nikola Tesla and if I'd do some articles on him. I actually did a, an article on him, I think it was episode 40 of Origins, my other podcast. So if you're interested, you could look there. And there are also many, many websites that have information about Tesla. Now, as you can hear, my voice has not been real good this week. So to close this week's episode, I'm going to do a repeat of an article from one of my Origins podcasts, which made quite a few people sit up and think and feel creepy and their skin crawl. It's about the terrifying toothpick fish.
to our feature story for today from the www.daminteresting.com. The Terrifying Toothpick Fish. And it was written by Alan Bellows on January the 30th, 2007. And if this little article doesn't make you squirm a little while you're listening to it, you must be a very stout heart indeed. The vast freshwater ecosystem of the Amazon River is home to abundant animal life, and many of its species thrive by virtue of their ferocity. If one were to ask the locals which of the river's indigenous species is the most treacherous, a few might describe the roaming packs of carnivorous piranhas or the massive anaconda snakes. But... Based on the general sentiment of the region, the most frequently uttered response would be Kandiru. The Kandiru is a tiny catfish which dwells in the depths of the Amazon River. These fish do not hunt in packs like the piranha, nor are they exceptionally large like the anaconda. In fact, the Kandiru is among the tiniest vertebrates on the planet, and it is sometimes referred to as the toothpick fish due to its small size and slender shape. Only a handful of people have had the misfortune of crossing paths with the Kandiru, but their experiences serve as cautionary tales to any who venture into the mighty river. Though the Kandiru is a parasite, humans are not among its viable hosts. It lingers in the murky darkness at the river's bottom, quietly stalking its neighbouring fish. Light is scarce in the soupy deep, but the Kandiru does not need to see. It can taste the traces of urea and ammonia that are expelled from breathing gills. This tiny hunter shadows its prey, almost invisible due to its translucent body and small size. When the target fish exhales, the Kandiru detects the resulting flow of water and makes a dash for the exposed gill cavity with remarkable speed. Within less than a second, it penetrates the gill and wriggles its way into place, erecting an umbrella-like array of spines to secure its position. Unconcerned with the host's panicked thrashing, the firmly anchored parasite immediately nibbles a hole in a nearby artery with its needle-like teeth, feasting upon the bounty that gushes forth. Within two minutes, the Kandiru's belly is swollen with the blood of its victim and it retracts its gripping barbs. Though it may seem that the exploited host fish has escaped, its injuries are so extensive that chances of survival are grim. Meanwhile, the victorious attacker slinks back into the river's dark places to digest its meal. There are many troubling stories regarding human run-ins with the Kandiru, though until recent years these were not given much credence by the medical community. It is not uncommon for people swimming or bathing in the river to urinate in the water, an action which creates tiny water currents that are rich in urea and ammonia. It seems that the tiny slender catfish cannot always distinguish a urinating human from an exhaling fish gill, and on occasion 
it will attempt its trademark high-speed attack on some unfortunate soul. Silvio Barbosa was one such soul. He was swimming in the Amazon River when he went head-to-head with the tiny parasite. I felt like urinating. I stood up, and it was then that it attacked me. The Kandiru attacked me. When I saw it, I was terrified. I grabbed it quickly so it couldn't go deeper inside. I could only see the end of its tail flapping. I tried to grab it, but it slipped away from me and went in. I was very afraid, because the Kandiru bites. When the Kandiru successfully invades a human, it proceeds exactly as it would with a fish host. After entering the misidentified orifice, it quickly wriggles its way in as far as possible, often accompanied by the victim's frantic attempts to grip the slippery mucus-coated tail. In the unlikely event that the panicked victim manages to grasp the fish, its backwards-pointing barbs would cause excruciating pain at each pull and bring a quick end to the dramatic tug-of-war. Once inside, the parasite inches its way up the urethra to the nearest blood-gorged membrane, extends its spines into the surrounding tissue and starts feasting. For the Kandiru, this misguided journey is a one-way trip. Its bloody banquet leaves it too swollen to escape. The only known retaliation against the invader is delicate and expensive surgery, or, failing that, a folk remedy which combines two herbs to very slowly kill and dissolve the fish. Silvio was fortunate enough to have access to modern medical facilities, though he had to endure three days of profound agony before the fish was extracted by an awestruck urogenital surgeon. Silvio's incident was the first officially confirmed report of a Kandiru attacking a human, but such leg-crossingly horrific tales have haunted the region for generations. According to legend, many men chose castration as an alternative to a slow, excruciating death back before surgery was an option. Though such brushes with the Kandiru are exceedingly rare in statistical terms, it is wise to heed the advice of the locals and avoid urinating in the Amazon River at all costs. When the natives of the Amazon speak, one would be foolish not to listen. They are privy to some of the world's most horrible truths. Well, that concludes episode 24 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and didn't cringe too much with the last article. Hopefully my voice is a bit better for episode 25. Until then, it's bye for now.